Welcome to the Lems Aware Podcast. We've been waiting for you. My name is Kevin Fryert, and I will be your host. Lambert-Eaton Myasthenic Syndrome, also known as LEMS, is a rare neuromuscular disease that can have a profound effect on a person's mobility and quality of life. LEMS Aware was created to deliver relevant information, resources, and connections to patients and caregivers who may be living with or affected by LEMS. The LEMS Aware podcast lets you hear from people in the LEMS community on topics that matter to you. Welcome back to the Lems Aware podcast. We are so glad you are back. Today, we have the opportunity to speak with Peter Calori. Peter has been living with Lems for nearly 20 years. He's been successfully treated and has found ways to adapt to Lems. His story is a powerful message for Lems patients and, frankly, anyone who faces disruptions in their life plans. Peter will be discussing his treatment regimen. Every patient is unique and your treatment experience may differ. To learn more about available treatments, you can go to lemsaware.com and click on the LEMS Diagnosis and Treatment tab. Peter, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hello, Kevin, um, and uh, I'll call them the LEMS listeners. Um, as introduced uh, by Kevin, uh, my name is Peter Calori, and I was born and raised in the suburbs of Boston, Massachusetts. I'm now retired and uh, live a Let's call it a happy life in Vista, California, and that's a suburb of San Diego, and that's been since about 2013. I was married to my college sweetie for over 50 years, and during that time, we raised two sons uh, who then extended our family to uh, three grandkiddies. Uh, over, over our 50 years, uh, my wife and I have lived in four countries and six states, and during my time in the army, uh, including uh, my time in the army, and then in my career that was spanning uh, several international corporate positions. Being retired and active, I expect to stay in San Diego for however long that happens to be. And uh, now, because all of my immediate family are now West Coasters, and of course, because it doesn't snow here. <laughs> so why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your day, your typical day? Okay. Uh, interesting question. Um, and, and just to start with that answer, uh, during my career prior to LEMS, it was hardly ever a typical day. But since LEMS uh, engulfed me, I'll say, and now being retired, a routine, and call that a typical day, is essential uh, in dealing with LEMS. Um, as many with LEMS may understand, the most difficult time of the day is at wake-up. Since your last dose of the meds was uh, hours ago prior to your bedtime, my typical day starts with uh, my LEMS meds as soon as I first awake, whatever that time may be. I then return to bed, hopefully, to sleep for about another hour. The LEMS meds are doing their job during that hour, so when I really wake up, uh, it's on with my day. 
this routine takes some practice and uh, and planning, as I found out, and uh, and an alarm set for the second wake up so I don't oversleep. But it works well for me in starting the day uh, with with minimal and uh, controlled uh, lens effects. And since it's so simple, hopefully it'll help others uh, face lens in the morning if I was active. But I'm guessing that uh, age has changed me so that my body clock won't delay that any longer. It would be interesting to know if aging affects other lenses the same way and at what age. Hmm. I didn't find any documentation, neither has the neurologist, about uh, age changing it. But since many folks are afflicted with it, as uh, I was uh, thinking, they're, they're afflicted a lot earlier in their, in their life um, than I was, uh, this may be a, a good piece of uh, research. Finally, on this question about the typical day, I get stronger as the day goes on. And with the uh, and along with the meds taken, I get even stronger if I'm active later in the day. In these cases, the lens effect seems diminished, and it's not my imagination. Um, at the end of an active day, however, lens gets its payback uh, with a rapid return, first with overall fatigue, followed by the other normal symptoms. So, an active day uh, is important. Uh, you know you're going to uh, you're going to get overcome by the end of the day, but uh, that's fine. You carry on a normal life and you go to sleep on time, and you're you're back to the end of your typical day. So can I understand that a little more? You your activity gives you energy, freedom from your from your symptoms throughout the day, and you can actually see that as you're more active, fewer symptoms. But when you get tired, you get tired right away. And and it's it's time to go to bed. It's it's like immediate fatigue. Exactly. It's like not quite falling off a cliff, but falling off a table, maybe. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, a typical day, if you can stay active, a typical day can be a great day. Uh, you just know at the end of the day you're going to get a good night's sleep. Wow. That's that's very interesting to know. And you called it body magic and body awareness, your body talking to you. That's like such a clear signal um, that just you you know what to do, but eventually your body says, it, it's done. Let's wait for tomorrow. So tell me, that you just told me what your life is like now with LEMS and with your treatments, but what was your life before LEMS? What was it like then? Ah, little history here. Um and, you know, actually, I'm, I'm having and have had a pretty good life. And even now that I'm dealing with LEMS, I think and actually I know that my daily routine and LEMS meds are sort of a lifeline. I'll consider it a lifeline, allowing me to be productive and able to do almost as much as pre-LEMS. I'll, I'll get into a little more detail, but I, I hope this part of the story kind of reflects my outlook on life and illustrates why lems can uh, lemsers can be somewhat positive and help themselves to lead as normal a life as they had pre-lems. There's a, a term I, I think we just coined a pre-lems and post-lems. All right, so um, let me uh, let me expand that a bit, and, and just to say, as I've mentioned, I was born and raised in Boston. 
uh, near Boston in a suburb, and, and I survived the active and normal childhood and a happy home uh, through the 1950s and 1960s without seatbelts, bike helmets, and even eating uh, Wonder Bread. So it was, it, was, it was the 50s and 60s, and we know all those stories. I earned a uh, BS, uh, Bachelor of Science in Civil Engineering from Northeastern University in Boston. And um, I'll, um, anybody who's listening to this and knowing I'm from Boston, I can confirm that, yes, I'm one of those happy and obnoxious fans of the New England Patriots and the Red Sox. I had to sneak that in. Uh, in 1969, thinking back, in 1969, two very personal events changed my life, uh, as they would for most who experienced this. First, I got married to my college sweetie, and I was inducted into the U.S. Army. As you may realize, the timeline for those events was uh, during the Vietnam War era, so, era, so I had a hard choice of several challenging paths uh, that face, uh, I think, many young adults at that time. I chose to serve and hopefully, uh, with the thought that hopefully I could expand my skill set uh, with a uh, unique job experience offered by the Army Corps of Engineers. And I've never regretted that path. During everyone's life, I think you uh, encounter choices, uh, forks in the road that you can never go back on. You can't ever reverse them. One is marriage and the other is army. And my third one was LEMS. How long were you in the army? I spent almost four years in the Army as an officer. I reached the rank of captain. And during that span, uh, one of my first jobs in the Army out of uh, the engineer school was I taught surveying, no kidding, uh, at the Army Corps of Engineers School in Virginia. And then uh, was assigned overseas. But prior to my overseas assignment, deployment, uh, I earned the um, airborne or parachute qualification and was assigned to uh, special forces, and specifically to the first special forces group, airborne, which was based in Okinawa. Uh, first special forces group is, uh, well, um, special and unique in the Army since it has a non-combat role. I'll interject here because I think, as I say, I never regretted it. It changed my life. And special forces in the Army uh, overall changed me. And looking back, I can understand uh, how the experience uh, kind of built and reinforced my skills, uh, my character, my self-confidence. All of this, I think, over the years has supported my happy family life, my career success, and um, has now proven to be the, can I say, secret sauce in dealing with limbs in everyday life. In the Army, our mission was uh, directed by the U.S. State Department and the Army and was designed to win the hearts and minds of the population of what we then termed the third world populations of East Asia and the Western Pacific Island nations. Our mission was mostly civic action projects, such as uh, temporary housing, uh, uh, roads, electrical systems, water systems, clean water, 
Uh, and we were also the rapid response force for relief from natural disasters, mostly typhoons, but there was an earthquake during my time also. So the temporary housing uh, role was very important, uh, bringing in uh, building materials for shelter, but also bringing in the, uh, uh, the food and the water uh, to help folks get through the disaster. It was always interesting to see the third world countries um, exposure to the army rations that we carried. Find the chocolate bars. That was, <laughs> that was the big deal. Uh, my favorite uh, and my primary project there was a, uh, and, and I'll, I'll call it my bragging rights, uh, was construction of a heavy lift uh, runway about 2,200 feet long on a very remote island called Hataruma Shima. It's part of the Ryukyun uh, or the Okinawan chain of islands. The Ryukyu Islands is Okinawa and the rest of the islands in that group. Uh, and this is uh, strung along the, uh, the boundary of the South China Sea. Uh, this project, and you can see how this would affect you for maybe the rest of your life as I think back to it, uh, it was a mission that gave about 300 uh, of the population on the island. Uh, they are very impoverished and isolated inhabitants of, of this island. Uh, we gave them emergency air access to food, uh, supplies, and medical transport. And it was intended to be an assist to help their uh, small island economy. The Hataruma Runway, a little aside here, the Hataruma Shima Runway, uh, has the uh, the standard international call sign HTR, and I've got the hat. Uh, and, and it was upgraded uh, by the Japanese government in 1971. It can actually be seen on Google Earth. And uh, the, the, the real, uh, I think, finish to that story is that as you look at it now, those humble and hardworking folks that I lived with and worked with for those many months have made Hataruma into a great tourist destination. It's a gold mine, <laughs> their little runway. So I guess I won their minds and hearts. And you got one of the first hats from it, so. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Um, that's that's amazing. What a story. I mean, it just kind of, it gives such good background on who you are and, and how life prepared you um, for LEM. So, but after you got out of the Army, you also traveled a lot too, I think, right? Right. Uh, after my Army experience and back in the world, as we used to say, uh, my career got on track and, and accelerated a bit. Um, the Army experience was self-confidence on steroids. So, and during my 40-year career after the Army, I traveled the world and lived outside of the U.S. for seven years. I think right now my current travel count is 27 countries visited, including the five uh, from my time in the Army. With all that, I, I first worked toward uh, gaining my civil engineering credentials. Uh, that was put on hold because once you have a degree, you have to get licensed. But all that went on hold while I was in the Army. Some of the Army experience counted, but uh, as I say, I, I worked toward gaining my uh, civil engineering credentials, which then led me to working as a site development manager covering construction and franchise recruitment for Burger King Corporation. Um, 
and um, ran their expansion um, push into uh, New England and upstate New York. I was promoted from that position to a to do the startup and organizing of the Burger King International Development Division in Europe. Burger King at the time was part of Pillsbury. So working through Pillsbury and Burger King, uh, the international startup uh, was done in Europe and then carried on. I was three years in Europe. And during that time, I carried on that same startup uh, development uh, for Asia, working at, actually working out of Germany, developing uh, the startup in Asia. And then uh, from that assignment, I was, uh, uh, I think, promoted. I'm not sure if it was promoted or lateral, but they, I got moved to uh, a four-year assignment to do the same in Canada uh, for Burger King International. Canada up to that time was just working off of the U.S. assistance, uh, but became their own uh, company uh, with the, uh, during that uh, four-year uh, development assignment. So I went from New England to Europe, Asia, to Canada. And then I got recruited by Taco Bell in California in 1984 in a very similar development role, managing uh, uh, the development and uh, franchise uh, franchisees that were assigned to the stores. And that brought our first move to Southern California. Uh, my career again with the same development role, expanded again in 1996 with a move to Duncan Brands, which is Duncan Donuts and Basket Robbins in Boston, back to Boston. And that role was to design and implement uh, new business processes, a kind of a brand upgrade, which you see today. Duncan was, a, was a, 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 an old tired brand. And during that period from late 90s into the early 2000s, a lot of upgrades were made and you see the results today. So I had a lot of new and uh, varied projects uh, which brought fun to my work. So the, the old uh, saying, if, if your job is fun, you'll feel like you've never worked. And I, I, I was sort of having that fun, although it was a lot of travel, uh, obviously levels of frustration, but we were making an impact. My career now takes me to the early 90s, and I thrived in that until uh, I hit the, what I called the LEMS wall in 2003. I took leave as LEMS was diagnosed and then treated. I returned to work in a new franchise development and consulting role for Duncan Brands until I retired in 2013 and returned to California that same year, 2013. You went all the way around the world, all the way back to Boston, and then came back to California after you had picked the place you wanted to live, right? You had, you had picked it out. Um, so how old were you when you were actually diagnosed with LEMS? Uh, Kevin, I was a happy 57 years old in mid-2003, and at the top of where I wanted to be with my career, um, my LEMS diagnosis uh, didn't come easily. It took several months and several detours through testing and treatments, starting with uh, suspected MS, uh, with MRIs, PET scans, spinal taps, and then treatment for myasthenia gravis and IVIG and infusions every week. But nothing helped. 
Um, oh, and by the way, um, 2003, I was diagnosed with celiac, which is the, uh, the gluten-free credentials, uh, if you call it that. And that was in uh, early 2003. So the autoimmune condition, so that, that being an autoimmune condition may have been the first signal that my body was malfunctioning in some sort of way, um, and if I can describe it that way. Uh, the Lem's diagnosis came in February 2004 from a specific Lem's test that was done through the Dartmouth Medical School in New Hampshire uh, and verified through the Mayo Clinic in Minneapolis. The first indication of what turned out to be Lem's was in mid-2003. And as I mentioned earlier, the diagnosis actually came in February of 2004. So here we are in the middle of 2003. I had difficulty swallowing and uh, sort of a light flash in the corner of my eyes, mostly my right eye. So I was first sent to an ophthalmologist uh, because of the eye flashes. But then a uh, full bore of lambs actually hit me literally overnight. I was in Japan with my wife visiting family in September of 2003. I awoke one morning and my legs were weak. I couldn't balance. I got better and stronger as the day went on. And we tried to seek local medical help. Unfortunately, with no result from the local medical system, I rebooked our return to Boston, left Japan immediately with my wife. And back home, we immediately went to the, uh, my primary care uh, doctor at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. Our time, at that time, our home was in Vermont, so Dartmouth Medical Center was close by in New Hampshire, if you look at the geography. Uh, so it was, and it's a very highly recommended and reputable uh, teaching hospital. I was admitted to the hospital that day uh, for exam by a neurology. Uh, neurologist and the whole neurology department, I think, paraded through over the course of that day. Uh, the first suspect was actually a possible toxin from a fish common to Japan. So the question was, what did you eat? My symptoms also fit the MS profile. So the MRI and the MS testing, including a spinal tap, was done. Uh, I was observed and tested for two or three days uh, and then released with a follow-up based on myasthenia gravis, which was their best guess at diagnosis at that time. I was also referred to a nearby VA hospital for a toxin test related to my uh, possible exposure to a chemical called Agent Orange. The nickname was Agent Orange. It had a long name that ended in toxin uh, that was used by the military as a jungle defoliant, which uh, kills trees so that aircraft can see the ground, I guess. Um, I really had no knowledge or proximity, no knowledge of or proximity to this chemical, uh, but the Army duty location. Um, made it uh, possible, made it a possible cause of my condition. So uh, according to the doctor who spotted that possibility, uh, better to be safe than sorry. And that was negative. Got to agree there that they, they took care to um, ensure that something that you didn't even, weren't aware that you could have been exposed to. So I'm glad to hear that. And by the way, thank you for your service. You're very welcome. My service treated me well. Thank you. 
Um, yes, and and the the fact that the neuro most of the neurology department paraded through my room, I give credit to one of those doctors that mentioned Agent Orange. So I've learned a lot about it, but it came up negative. So that's that was one of the good things. Um, so anyway, during this probing for a diagnosis, um, my wife was, I would call my total support because I was unable to drive. I was, I, I, I couldn't walk steadily. I couldn't stand for any length of time without losing my balance. I was losing my leg strength. Uh, I could read a bit. Um, I could watch TV and be online for maybe uh, five minutes at a time. I had, of course, I had the double vision and eye flashing, so it's a little tough to read and watch TV. A little entertaining, but not effective. I was very cautious while eating due to the chewing and swallowing difficulty. And by process of elimination, I'm, I'm supposing that by process of elimination, a LEMS antibody test series uh, was done. And I really think, looking back on it, thinking about it now, they were fishing and they said, let's try this LEMS thing. Dartmouth Hitchcock had no experience and never had a LEMS patient. So here they were fishing a little, and thank goodness, because it was done just prior to Christmas in 2003, and the results came back in 30 days, February 2004, and the result was lit up with LEMS. Wow. So that... The whole story of trying to find the diagnosis just seems like it would be frustrating, anxiety-producing, um, just just a terrible journey. How did you and your family react when you finally had a definitive diagnosis? You just described it very well <laughs> about the reaction. But uh, it's hard to recall uh, my, my reaction, my family's state of mind. But thinking back think I was probably relieved uh, because we found out what it was and a little frightened because what is what does it what does lems mean and what what was the long term what's the long term um, life gonna be like family was always was very supportive and uh, they tried hard to keep me positive and keep my sense of humor uh, my wife was my primary uh, lifeline watching and helping every step of the way to the diagnosis, then got me organized um, and smoothly into my new life. Uh, I got along that same line, I got great support from all of my Boston brains of the family and from our two sons in California. So uh, yeah, um, everybody joined in to help me get settled into the new, new life uh, with the limbs condition. And uh, family and close friends, I think, all made it much easier, as you can probably imagine. And you mentioned before the diagnostic journey that they were treating you with things that weren't working. So how did things change once they had the right diagnosis? Well, um, so the LEMS treatment began. And it, it was surprising to me at the time because it involved only the meds taken by mouth. And I'm still amazed that days after the LEMS test result in February 2004, I struggled to get to the neurologist's office at the hospital. I was given my first ever LEMS med. 
And I think it's important to note that as I have aged, my body signals me that a dose is due. So have you been able to travel again? Uh, I've continued to travel over the years with LEMS, and as a device to others, I carry a three to four day supply of LEMS meds in my car as part of my earthquake kit. I call it my Get Stranded kit. Earthquake kits are essential here in California if, you're, uh, if the freeways and return routes home become blocked after an earthquake. I actually had an occasion to use my emergency supply in my glove compartment uh, when the freeways were blocked by a major brush fire and my return home was delayed by about 12 hours. So I would have been out of meds if I didn't have it with me. I had my daily dose. I had no more if I didn't have it in the glove compartment. After 12 hours, I was able to get home. So you never know. It's sort of the, uh, I'll call it the LEMS airbag. It's there in your car if you need it. And if you move back to Boston, it can be a snowstorm kit. Don't remind me about snow. <laughs> so tell me, Peter, what have you learned about yourself since you developed LEMS? Let me put it this way. You recognize your limits, but don't limit yourself. Um, I try a new activity and expand on my current ones. Um, I have a new adventure, and I do whatever I can to maintain a comfortable lifestyle. Um, life changes, but it doesn't end. Um, I've attempted new things, uh, and I, I try to make limbs a side issue. I talked about this once before, but I think there's a life lesson, maybe a metaphor, in the airborne and parachute training uh, that I went through. When something is new and difficult, uh, that first step is the hardest. Once you take that step with the right mindset and the right resources, like a working parachute, uh, gravity and momentum take over. Okay, it's a bad metaphor, but it's very true. You'll be proud of yourself having managed to live well with that tough limbs obstacle. Life, I think, throws stuff at you, whether you expect it or not, you'll have to deal with it. So deal with it. So just before we close, what's one last thing you'd like to share with our listeners? I hope some of my story takes hold to improve at least one limbs patient. Uh, I've avoided the depressing term limbs sufferer until now, since I think positive mind can do wonders beyond just the meds and outside, outside encouragement. So don't be a sufferer. I know that LEMS affects everybody differently and the way people approach it is different. And you seem to set a very high bar for where you, how you want to live with LEMS. So could you tell us a little bit about how you keep that positive mindset and how you, how you approach it that way? When something like this is embedded in you, it's hard to really explain it. But let me go back to a comment I made earlier, and that is, I recognize my limits, but I don't limit myself. I know what I like and what I can do. I work that into my daily life. I know I get stronger as the day goes on. I know if I travel, I have to do this change of schedule. 
I set my bar where I feel my limit is. And there are a couple of things that I don't do, but I enjoyed before Lambs. One is golf. Um, I attempted to play golf after I had Lems, and I amazed myself. It changed my swing. I was a better golfer for about three holes. And then the, the, the grip, a grip problem, which is the strength of uh, your hands and, and your grip, obviously, uh, became a problem. So my limit now is three holes of golf or maybe just putting. That's a, kind of an analogy, but you see where I'm going. It's I know I can drive and and travel for six hours at a time, not nine or ten, six or seven, maybe. Uh, I know I can do air travel through time zones if I adjust. So I know my limits. Uh, I just have a I, I may have a uh, you know a, a higher um, uh, level of ambition uh, for travel or doing things. I, I have a part-time job uh, with um, uh, uh, delivering packages for Amazon. And that is, I, I know my limits there, but if I'm working for three hours, it's a three-hour route, uh, which is very comfortable for me. I know my limit. I'm not going to do a five-hour route. I'm going to do a three-hour route. But I also know that that's part of what I would call my lens therapy because I'm getting in and out of my car 30 to 40 times in three hours, walking upstairs, downstairs, um, moving, twisting, lifting, not huge weights or large packages, but just going door to door, basically making the deliveries. And the, the only downside there is that I, with lambs, I can't outrun the customer's dogs, but I probably couldn't do that before anyway. But I, am, I, am I answering your question? Because I think that every, obviously everybody is different. My mentality is I know where my limits are. I may push them a little bit, but I know, I know the schedule of my meds. Um, I know that, uh, you know, I'm not 40 years old anymore. And I know what I enjoy. That's how I get through it. I guess that's how I set my bar. That's what my bar is. Everybody's bar is going to be different. But I would encourage everybody with lambs to push that bar up a little bit. Uh, it isn't just the medication and uh, the encouragement from outsiders. It's the, uh, the will to do it. And, uh, you know, they live your life. Life changes but it doesn't end. Thank you so much for sharing your story, Peter. We truly hope that you are enjoying and learning from our conversations with people from the LEMS community on the LEMS Aware podcast. If you are, we encourage you to follow and rate the show on your favorite podcast outlet. And check out the other resources on the LEMSAware.com website. We look forward to being with you again soon on the LEMS Aware podcast. Thank you for listening to the Lems Aware podcast. You can learn more about Lambert Eaton Myasthenic Syndrome and how to get involved in the Lems community at www.lemsaware.com. Lems Aware, turning Lems knowledge into strength. The Lems Aware podcast is produced by Salem Oaks, empowering patients to shape the future of medicine.